Welcome to Unqualified Sports, where the unqualified athlete has the most qualified opinions. This is a very special episode today. This is our Father's Day special of the podcast. So first and foremost, happy Father's Day to all the great fathers out there. Um, The day of the year has finally came to where we get all the recognition for being great, great people, great fathers, great men. So happy Father's Day to you guys. Um... This episode we have for you guys today was outstanding. It, it's amazing. Um, this interview I did with my uncle, uh, Swag, and his son, Cleve, uh, both collegiate and high school athletes. Uh, just was a, an amazing, great stories. Uh, it was just it was just wonderful. So make sure y'all tune in. Listen, it's, it's definitely worth your time. Uh, and Cleve and Swag... Thank you guys for what you did. I really appreciate it. This is hands down my favorite episode, the most entertaining episode I ever did. Um, you know, we at Unqualified Sports want to give you guys uh, what Cleve not checked for you, but swag definitely for you. A happy Father's Day. Um, and uh, I express myself to you guys uh, in the interview, so I don't think I have to go any further with that. But you guys know how I feel about y'all. Y'all my family. I love y'all. Um, and for everybody else, thank y'all for listening. You will not be disappointed with this episode. Y'all be blessed. Welcome to Unqualified Sports, where the unqualified athlete has the most qualified opinions. Uh, This is an honor to have the guests we have today. They are literally my family, and I love them dearly. I have my uncle. James Hayward Davis, a.k.a. Hayward, a.k.a. Swag, that's what I call him, and my cousin, Cleve Hayward Davis, a.k.a. Big Davis, a.k.a. Al Bundy. Bruh. He got the reference. <laughs> Rule. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, man, how y'all doing today? Fine, man. Good, how are you? Bless. I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I, uh, I want to thank y'all again for doing this interview with me, and especially for this, this is a Father's Day edition of the uh, podcast, so... We did a Mother's Day edition. We had a little boy, nine years old. We did it with him and his mom. She kind of coached him up with basketball and stuff like that. He's pretty good, for, especially for a nine-year-old. And uh, so we wanted to do a Father's Day edition. I couldn't think of two more like two more qualified people to do this uh, interview. So, again, thank y'all. Um, I want to kind of start by letting y'all kind of give a brief little detail of y'all's sports background. So, um, Swag, if you want to start, just like what's your sports background? Uh, I played high school ball at McKinley High School four years. It was a four-year starter, one of the very few. Uh, I played quarterback at Southern University. It's All-American. I don't know how that happened. Uh, I coached football for 18 years, South Baton Rouge Rams. Uh, that's basically what I did. Athletic. Okay. What about you, please? Um, my dad, as you heard, was a coach. So I got the opportunity to get a lot of early coaching from him. Uh, I started, what, two, three years old, Pops? Uh-huh. Going to practice with you. Drinking uh, up all the water. Well, you know, it's hot out there, baby. <laughs> um, I've, I've been in organized sports between age, what, five and 22 and I've been coaching the last few years, so all my life's been sports. I played football at McKinley, 
senior high school, as my father did, following his footsteps. Uh, probably shouldn't have went there, to be honest, which as far as athletically, but um, got a hell of a experience. Played my played four years at LSU. Uh, coached two years after that at uh, North at um, McKinley High School. Three years at McKinley. Two years at Northwestern State. And currently, I'm coaching with Baton Rouge Southern Prep out of the old Redemptionist High School. So, football, sports, always been my life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Cool. Uh, I want to ask too. Uh, Swag, what'll be your first memory of football? The first football game I participated in was in 1964. And it was against Central Memorial of Bogalusa. I was 14 years old. And I don't know how I got on the field. But they put me out there. And I was playing running back then. And we won 12 to 6. And I scored a touchdown. And looked like every game I ever played, I scored in. So. <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. What about you, Clee? What's your first memory of football? My first memory of football was uh, sitting on the back of one of my pop's assistant's coaches' uh, truck. Uh, Chill. Coach Chill's truck. And uh, watching them push that truck up and down the hill and um, watching the players uh, carry each other on that back running up the hill. And when they'll get done, they don't have any water left because I done drunk all up. <laughs> That's my first memory of football. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay, um, Swag, let me start with you again. Uh, who is your all-time favorite football player and why? Jim Brown is the greatest football player ever. Because he can say some things, and he did some things nobody else did. One, and probably the biggest to me, he never ran out of bounds. He was a runner who never ran out of bounds. He never was hurt in a game where he couldn't play, and he quit when he was at the height of his career to do something else. Greatest football player ever. You've been telling me that since I can remember. So <laughs> five yards to carry, average a hundred yards a game. Yeah, yeah. I did, that, eight time Russian, eight time Russian leader. We got the Jim Brown profile. Yeah, and I, I've always kind of wanted to be the one that kind of kind of rock the boat or go against the grain. But as a football, I like to call myself a football historian as well. Jim Brown is the greatest. He is the greatest football player to ever play. Now they got some other football players that's really good. They got really great cared. players too. Great players. I think in modern era, Ray Lewis stands alone. Now, I know he been <sighs> I know he, he hasn't done the things I think he should have done recently. But on the football field, he was a monster. I agree. I agree. So, who was your favorite all time, Cleveland? Jerry Rice, man. Always been a Jerry Rice guy. Uh, Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo, the first, uh, Tecmo Bowl 91, that one. Tecmo Bowl. Tecmo Super Bowl. Jerry Rice was unstoppable. I fell in love with, with the character, with the with the player. And even in his advanced age, he always was really good, really productive. Uh, his work ethic was second to none, and I kind of wanted to model myself as a worker. 
Captain Jerry Rice. Well, kind of like how Swag said about uh, Ray Lewis and the public not necessarily seeing eye to eye. I don't know if you remember the Jerry Rice Popeyes commercial. Yeah, I remember. That. Okay, I remember. we ain't gonna get too much into it. Well, you know you know? <laughs> I know you're sick. Okay, okay. that's still your favorite player. That's my favorite player. <laughs> but he's sick. That's, that's I almost cool. changed. I almost changed. Ray Lewis is a cute, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, we look. We we got. He he don't, he don't make. I don't know if he's cute. <laughs> okay. All that. Um, uh, this some. Um, I was actually just. Um, <laughs> okay, this is something I did want to ask you though. That's why I never got an opportunity to talk to you about it, but it's something I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Growing up in the fifties and sixties, and like you said, you, you your first memory was in nineteen sixty four. Um, did you only play against other blacks? And if you did play against whites, what was that like at that time? We never. I I grew up in a segregated society. At McKinley High School, the only white people we saw were the police. We won the championship the same year that Baton Rouge High, which was an all-white school then, won the championship. And we went to that school and asked them to play us. Our trophy, their trophy. See who the best. And they wouldn't have it. We almost got arrested for going on their campus. But that was the mentality of 1968. Blacks were being more assertive. Uh, the old mentality of, you know, ducking your head and shuffling, that was dead. And all we talked about was being revolutionary. Change the system by any means necessary. And we went there and we asked them to play us and they balked. They were scared. Mm. Looking them in their eyes, they were scared. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> that's that's huge. I never thought about that. Like that's that's great. Like black history, baby. And for real, for real, for real. Uh-huh. Um, did you play any? Did you play against any whites? And when you played for Southern? No. Mm. It was HBCUs at that time. Very few blacks went to white universities. The 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 push for integration I think started like 70, 71, something like that. But before then, teams like Prairie View, Prairie View had a monster. Grambling, Southern, uh Jackson State, Texas Southern. They, they had players that played in the NFL. And it was, I'm talking about some great games. I saw, I saw Walter Payton. They had the ball first and goal. He played with Jackson State. And we're playing, they were playing us at Southern. And this guy named Armadine Brown stopped him four times in a row from getting into the end zone. And most people never heard of Armadine Brown. Yeah, right. (laughs) Now he became principal at McKinley, but people never heard of him athletically because they say he was too short and he was too small to play linebacker. But that's not Mr. Brown. That's That's Mr. Brown. His heart, the thing you can't measure, his desire, his heart. I seen him go helmet to helmet with Walter Payton in the hole, 
just them two. And it was that. Still me. Ooh. Wow. Man, you talking about make your heart. <laughs> oh, oh. And he did it four times. They gave him the ball four times. Southern won that game. 22-21. And they had four chances to score from the one. And they gave Walter Payton the ball four times. Fire the coach. And he did not score. Fire the coach. Don't fire the coach. Fire the coach. Kick a field goal. That was his. That was. No. Fire that was his horse. Damn all that. Fire the coach. Kick a field goal in the game. No. That was his hole. Cost my ass. Yeah. It's a different. It's a different. It's a different era. I feel that. It's a different era. I'm a coach. I'm trying to win. HBCUs at that time had a different kind of mentality. Greatest quarterback I've ever seen played for Tennessee State. Names Eldridge Dick. They played Southern for homecoming. Eldridge Dickey came on the field. They, they set a helicopter down. I'm serious. <laughs> and he came out of the helicopter. And when he was warming up, he could throw right-handed and left-handed. And I watched him do it. <laughs> but at the time, blacks were not supposed to be smart enough to play quarterback center or linebacker. That's just the day it was. Hmm. But a guy like that today, he need an armor car <laughs> For real. to go home. Gorilla money. Yeah, he'd get big time money, man. But it's just the things I saw. Yeah, that's that's actually some amazing experiences. Um, I know both of y'all played, like I said, both of y'all played for McKinley, which is an historical black high school, especially in Baton Rouge. I know the first black, yeah, the first black high. That's what I was just about in to say. Louisiana. Yeah, in, the in the state of Louisiana, so yeah. that's even better. Um, and y'all rival was Capital High. I know Swag Unit told me some stories of uh, just from walking home, not even football stories, just <laughs> walking home stories. So uh, I don't even want you to get necessarily into that. Um, but you know, the rivalry is called. Downtown showdown. Mm -hmm. um, what were y'all records as far as you know, both of y'all individually? What were y'all records against uh, Capital? I was one or two. Um, man, we had some. We had some real bad ones. Man, we had a fifty-eight nothing loss to Capital. That was my sophomore year. That was one of the worst days that. of my I life. I think I went to that game. Yeah, man. I I had a great game. We didn't. Sound like LeBron James. Well, you know. Uh, more him, like Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> yeah, him used to hit that word of crime. <laughs> we never scored less than 60 points. <laughs> Old Capital. I never played a whole game against Capital because when at halftime, first two possessions of the third quarter, I was sitting down. Y'all was blowing them out there. Yeah, blowing them out. Out, out. 35, 42, nothing to what did Was that like some, that was a, a, a game where y'all just was like, this is the goal, period. Especially with them. Like, was it like especially with them type thing, or was it like just in general for everybody? We wanted to inflict as much pain on capital <laughs> as we possibly could. <laughs> and they felt the same way about us. And I'll be honest with you, uh, 
I admire and respect Coach Bates. He was a new coach then coming in, but we had old season coaches and they prepared us well. McKinley in the 50s and early 60s, McKinley had a record for 13 seasons they were undefeated. For 13 seasons they were undefeated. Right. The guys a year before I came lost the game and the old players wanted to kill all of them. <laughs> they wanted to kill them. Say, what are y'all doing? I, but that's the way it was. It was an honor to play at McKinley when I was there. When when I was 14, when I was in ninth grade, and I came out for the team that was 130-some guys trying out for a football team. And you couldn't keep that many. Right. So, I, and I, I mean, I've seen some, some real tough dudes that didn't make it. Right, right. That didn't make it. Okay. One guy in particular that I remember, his name was Paul Williams. <clears throat> he was a running back. And he didn't make the team. And he went to live with his aunt in California. And he broke all their record, rushing records out there. But he didn't make the team at McKinley. That's the kind of that's the <laughs> right, kind of right. deal it was. Right, right. It was hard, man. So, right. what was the most memorable moment of that rivalry for both of you guys? For me, I had a friend named Audney Todd, and my cousin's name was Lewis Williams. They went to Capitol. They lived on Forty Eighth Street. And the night before my senior year game. I went to the house. Ardney placed safety. And I told him, I said, man, I'm going to throw five touchdowns on you tomorrow. <laughs> I stole on him. I stole on him. He was mad with me. I stole him. He was mad with me. But guess what? You did. I didn't play but two minutes of the third quarter. <laughs> and you had five. I had five. I threw the fifth one in the third quarter, but I threw four <laughs> in the first half. And every time I did, I'll point at him. I told you. I told you, bro. And that was, to me, the greatest moment. <laughs> what about you, please? Man, my, my favorite moment, of course, happened my senior year. Man, we finally beat them up. We finally beat them dudes. <laughs> right, right, right. I almost let how I feel come out of <laughs> Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, we finally beat them. Um, with like a minute and 15 seconds left on one of my partners he was a backup quarterback he came in through a touchdown everybody going crazy but still had a minute left so I'm everybody celebrating I'm trying to get everybody I'm, I'm like a party pooper or something like that I'm like man look we still gotta go on defense and stop these dudes man <laughs> right 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 um, Capital had a top quarterback prospect um, Terrence Broadway yeah, Broadway came in like he had been hurt and we blitzed the hell out of uh, Brad. I think it was Bla uh, Bradley Brown and uh, Teran James, two pretty good friends of mine to this day. They were playing quarterback, rotating. And this whole game, we blitzing them, we staying them, we stopping the run, we stuffing them. Well, Broadway come on the field in the fourth quarter. They had to basically carry him out. It was like Byron left with yourself. It's like, <laughs> I, this dude here about to bring us to the promised land. He can't walk. 
our coach tell us all to fall back. Like he got he dropping eight in the coverage and we were only rushing three. We've been blitzing the whole game, tearing him up. Like, coach, man, don't just let this dude sit back here and uh and pick us apart. Naturally, first two plays he completed 20, 25, 22 yards. So on the field, we just told him, look, man, we're gonna go back, we're gonna run our own stuff because Coach Bush BS with us. And um the last play of the game, we basically had a blitz that was called that wasn't called that we ran. I got pressure on Broadway. Um, he like right before he threw the ball, I laid him out. I fell on top of him. I was trying to make sure I got a real big lick on him. <laughs> and I just looked up. I got up quick and looked up, and I saw the ball in the air. And it was in the half ever. It's in the air. And I'm like, man, this dude here about to catch the damn ball. We about to lose. We ended up we ended up uh, knocking the ball down in the end zone, and everybody went crazy. It's week one. People throwing their helmets. We done threw the, they had the cooler. We done threw the water at the coach. We ain't even trying to do the, the Gatorade shower. We hit him with the cooler. Man, bro, we started beating up freshman cheerleaders came. I had a cheerleader jump in my lap. I ain't going to say it, man. How you doing, baby? I had a cheerleader jump in my lap. I had uh, I had my little nephew. I had my nephew come on the field, man. He was like, oh, y'all did it, man. Y'all did it. And I was like, bro, we did, man. We really did that. Elf Cowboy. That's a hell of a story. <laughs> That's a hell of a story, man. So, Cleve, um, there's a question direct, directed, you know, strictly for you. Um, I know the talent. I know talent-wise, when you was there at McKinley, uh, it wasn't like loaded. Um, you know, when you was playing or whatever. And I know they played you in a lot of different roles, like probably outside of where you probably wanted to play. So, what was that? What you think is your natural position and why? Well, um, when I was playing. When I was playing ball at McKinley. I had, in my four years, I had three different head coaches with three completely different offensive philosophies. So, naturally, whoever came in, that's the philosophy I had to kind of roll with. Um, under Coach Swinton, he, Coach Bruce Swinton, he was more uh, more pro-style. Pro-style offense, eye back, a lot of 21 personnel. Uh, he was... He was a really good offensive mind, I believe. Really good offensive coach is just, you know, not all coordinators are meant to be head coaches. Um, head coach Robert Valdez, he's a, a spread sort of veer option guy. He's at St. James now, and then finally I had Robert Signator. My first two years, I was a fullback, tight end, defensive end. Um, my 11th grade year, I played strictly defensive end with Robert Valdez. It took the ball out of my hands, and, of course, I wasn't a happy camper. And um, I was a four-year starter but a three-year letterman at McKinley because I lost my third letter, my third-year letter because my coach put me off the team. Um, and I'm pretty you – know, you know how I am. I'm pretty strong, strong-willed. Once I decide something, you're not going to tell me something. You're not going to tell me otherwise. Uh I felt like I was a team captain. I would tell, I told my head coach at the time, like, look, I'm going to be here next year. You won't. And so why should I give a damn about what you're saying? Naturally, he didn't like that and put me off the team. But for him, I was a defensive lineman. Uh, ended up getting all, all district and all metro honorable mention in the position I hadn't played. And senior year, I was a defensive end, and I played a little fullback a little bit, but not much. It wasn't until I got to LSU where I really feel like I played my quote-unquote natural position, which was a fullback, a running back. Uh, everybody know about Big Five, great family running back, and my dad was a great quarterback. I was sort of in the middle. I was kind of strange because <laughs> uh, 
I was big. I'm a bigger person than them. I'm not quite as fast. My dad was real fleet footed. He he'll tell you he ran four two. I think he might have ran four five. <laughs> but backwards. <laughs> I think he ran four five. Backwards. <laughs> oh, backwards. Okay. He ran four five backwards. I didn't even know it. Yeah. He said he ran four two. And uh, my brother, he was four three, four four, and I was a four eight, big body. But I was a bruiser, and I figured, man, if if I was born maybe fifteen years younger, fifteen years before I was, I might have been a great running back or something like that. But for the way the games played, um, with the advent of the spread, me being a natural fullback in my head, I'm sort of phased out. So once I got to college, I probably should have moved to Mike linebacker or something like that to further my playing career, but once I decided I was going to be a running back and I decided I was going to be a better running back to Big Five and go further than Big Five, I sort of pigeonhole myself as a fullback. And but I know you kind of you kind of mentioned this a little earlier uh, in the interview, um, kind of about going to McKinley and maybe you shouldn't have. What was, what was that like? What was that situation? Why did you say that? Um, as far as the people I met and uh, the culture, and the sort of appreciation that I have for for black people and where I'm from, I couldn't have got a better experience than the one I got at McKinley. But as far as strictly athletically and the, the development of my personal athleticism and my own personal body as an athlete, I probably should have went somewhere else, Episcopal or somewhere, or maybe Catholic higher redemptions where there's a stable program, where there's a stable facility. There's a, a, there's a facility where you can grow in. Um, a problem that McKinley has today, they're a 5A school with 3A facilities. And if you're not able to, if you don't have a field house or if you don't have a five-man sled or if you got to buy footballs for the first day of practice because you don't have any versus a place where if it rain outside, we can still have practice, we still going to go. If it rain outside of McKinley, if it thunder, practice over with, you got to go inside. Or you got to go in the gym and practice. You're right. not working on your time and the things that you really need to be doing. But it's no regrets, I'm assuming. Oh, hell no. No regrets no. at all. That's, uh-uh. that's pretty cool. Well, Sway, you, I was going to ask you about playing in college, but you kind of already touched on a lot of things. But I, I want to say, just, and I know I try, to, I, try to think, I try to remember a lot of things you tell me. But one of these things I can remember you told me, if I'm, I could be wrong, is that you knew how to throw a pass and make it curve. Mm-hmm. Still can <laughs> okay, I never. I don't know Research. if I've ever seen that. That's that wrist action. Do you see that currently in in any? No. In, no. Rogers throw a good ball now, pops. He'll drop it in there on you. Who? Aaron Rodgers. He can make. He's, you just seen him cur- curve it though. I mean, like if if you like if you consider a curve it's going, wrist. if it drop right in like that on you, where it just fall in your hand like that, you can drop but it in on you. You 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 referring to being able to do that? And had the ball go around it. Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I ain't seen nobody do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you need to tell. Well, okay. Well, let me ask you this: Was there anybody else doing that in your time, or were you the only person that you knew? Only person I've ever seen do it, other than me. Dickie, dude named Lawrence Haynes, the guy who played quarterback before I played. Quarterback. Ah, and that's where I learned to do it from him. How deadly was that? Because I can just imagine that's like horrible to defend. He was probably one of the most accurate passes you'll ever find anywhere. 
and that's that's real. But he was black at the wrong time. He well, they say we can't think. Right. So we wouldn't be able to determine coverage, uh, audibles, which we we did all those things, but we weren't able to do it on a scale. But the the most accurate pass I've seen is Lawrence Hines. They call him Dylan. They still live in Baton Rouge. He played tennis now. Huh. And he in his sixties. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is crazy. So uh just to just to think about a curving pass. Like that's why I'm like that's why I had to ask you if you ever seen it in that's the modern time. Because I I haven't Nobody I look at these youngsters today. Uh, I don't, I don't critique them, and I don't criticize. Them. But they don't have work ethic. Like he was talking about Jerry Rice, work ethic. Now that's work ethic. The best conditioned team wins ninety percent of the time. If you know that, then why wouldn't you want to be the best conditioned team on the field? If you're a coach. And you know that. Why would you want to be the best conditioned team on the field? Youngsters nowadays, they have Nintendo and Playstations <laughs> and Xboxes. And, you know what I mean? Glad you ain't fixed that up and say Play Xs Playboxes. <laughs> Xbox folk. <laughs> they got these things. And they, the th- the, it, it works for their dogs, but does nothing for their bodies. When I was a youngster, you couldn't sit in the house. You had to go outside. Period. They called you when it was lunchtime when you got your sandwich. And then when you got through with your sandwich, back out. <laughs> Street lights. <laughs> right, right. Oh, <laughs> yeah, now, now, Clee, I know you had a different path to college than, uh, than Swag did. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you was, like, what you had, like, 27, 28 on your ACT. Mm-hmm. You were clear, like, I can remember... You was five, you was reading the newspaper, and not like the funny section of the newspaper, like literally news yeah, that was man. not, that shouldn't have been interesting to a five-year-old, you would think, but Cleve read it. Yeah, so you, you were always very smart, you know, right. like that was always something you had. Um, what was it like being a walk-on at LSU? Uh, well, first you got to get over, the first thing you have to, you, you learn to get over is being a fan of your teammates. Um, when I got there, uh, Patrick Peterson was there, and Mo Claiborne, and Charles Scott, Keelan Williams, Richard Murphy, um, yeah, Al Woods, Drake Nevis. All these dudes were all Americans, and like I grew up, I went to McKinley, so I'm like, man, these dudes here—they the best walking around, you know. So you get to practice, and you get your gear, and they—they they outfit you with everything. You feel good. They make sure everything tailored to fit. And you go out to practice, and basically, if you let yourself become a live crash test dummy, that's what you become. Um, you know, you gotta, you have to earn your respect out there. You know, they they figure you a walk on. They can get any walk on to come in. How you ain't got a scholarship, you ain't nothing. You trash. So, um, your first few days, it could be real. It could be real hard on you if you let it. But I mean, I figure I come from McKinley and. Having the background that I have in football and coming and having the parents that I've had and the experience that I've had, that was pretty easy to deal with. I think um, definitely wasn't the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. That's for sure. 
hardest thing. The hard it, it's definitely harder telling that, telling your dad that you got a B or a C in the class. Well, my dad that, that I got a B or C in the class than ever going to football practice at all. <laughs> right, right, right. Understood. Understood. That's pretty cool. I, I mean, and I, I will say that I I have uh, I, I can't think of how the saying goes, but uh, I definitely enjoyed the fact that you played for LSU. Uh, <laughs> oh, did I? <laughs> We definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, man, that was an experience. Y'all made a couple trips, man. Yeah, it was it was an experience. Uh, we went to Brian Dennis Stadium the last time LSU beat what? Alabama. Yeah, man, I was on that team. Wait. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, that it was, was fun. It was fun, man. I, I'm, it was. That was an experience. Like, that, was that was a that was a great experience. I, I'm I'm glad I was. I'm glad y'all brought me in to be a part of that. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie, like. That was amazing. It's, um, a, it's a great feeling, though, man. It's, it's really a great feeling once you, especially if you set like I mean, I've set goals and like like I'm I'm goal driven. So I said I'm gonna play football for LSU. I'm gonna get on the field. Um, I'm find a way to become a Letterman. I'm find a way to become All Conference All American. Well, I didn't quite get to be All American, but I was All SEC academically. Um, I ended up becoming a Letterman. I ended up becoming a, a member of the special teams. I was. Play it a week a couple times. It was nice. It was real nice. Man. Yeah, you even had your own spot on uh, what WFB. Yeah, well, you know, I had enough something, you know, <laughs> a, little, a, little, a little bit, you know. You imitated. Yeah, yeah you, know, you imitated. Let's my character. You know, my character showing through. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of ironic in like some form of fashion how both of y'all like played football in high school to same high school. Y'all both played college, and y'all both end up coaching. Um, this one's gonna start with you, Cleve. Um, you coached some college, and I know you even did some coaching at McKinley, like you said. Um, what was that experience like, just coaching high school and then coaching college? With um, with high school, coach high school, especially when you coach, if you're able to coach at your alma mater, you get a you get a different type of fulfillment. Knowing the knowing the sort of kids that I I had the opportunity to coach, and knowing what they needed, it uh, knowing what knowing what the kids around me needed, it helped me communicate with them better. It helped me it helped me become a better coach for them. They were it was a lot of situations where I had I had kids that didn't have any type of male influence in their life, and I became the positive male influence in their life. And you have to hold yourself, I believe, to a different standard. As opposed to being a college coach, um, you're basically a traveling salesman. You have to go around. You have to recruit for your college. You have to um, have to spend a lot of money to get people to come in and usher people around. And it's, it's less about football when you get to the college level. It's more about um, making things fit within a certain quota for everything, whether it be scholarship or um, you got to travel a certain number of miles for your recruiting visits, or you got to get a certain amount of contacts, and it's it's a lot of boxes you have to check. Versus in high school, when you're coaching high school kids, you don't do as much recruiting. You you already have your 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 pool where you're pulling from, and you have to basically take and mold what you have. In college, you can pretty much have a rotating door every year. Every day, every year, you can have a completely new group. Right, right. With high school, you get to watch those kids grow up. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's um, why I, that's why I like that. I, I like. I prefer. Like a high school approach. I prefer the high school approach. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I know Swag. Um, 
uh, you by many, especially locally, you probably one of the best. Like you just you kind of talked a little bit about your coaching, and I know um, you was one of the best football coaches in Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, especially amongst like what you coach Pee Wee football, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us, you know, how how you got into the coaching of Pee Wee football and the process of you becoming such a good coach? The way I got into it, uh, some of my friends. As a matter of fact, I went to see him yesterday. Gary Neller and Choo Choo Brooks. I saw them. They said, look, man, we we got some little boys. We, we trying to start a team, but we need some help. I said, okay, I'll come and see what y'all got. And I just fell in love with it because it's the purest form of football because you start a structure from the foundation. These kids know nothing about the ball, right? And all they know is what you teach them. Uncorrupted. They don't have no bad habits in football. And that was the purest sense of it. And a lot of the kids didn't have fathers. And you were able to kind of show them how a man's supposed to be. And that's important in life. We as black men, we are become so selfish. We worry about our kids and we don't think about other people. And that gave me an opportunity to work with some kids, try to help them, try to straighten them out. Some of them straightened out, some of them didn't. But it was the effort that was greatest, I thought. Now, how do you become a good coach? You become a good coach, I think, if you put your heart and your desire into becoming a good coach. You got to study. Nothing replaces study and effort. Now, and I used to tell the players that there are part, two parts of you that I can't measure. I can measure your height and your weight. But your desire and your heart, I can't measure. But you're going to show me what you got. And if it fits our program, you're going to stay. And if it doesn't measure up, I'm going to cut you. And that was life. And that's the way life is even today. So you become a good coach by really wanting to be. You got to study. You got to take time to do certain things. We had a rule in break that said every player had to play. And one season, we only gave up one touchdown the whole season. (laughs) And our staff was livid because we gave up one touchdown. But what happened was our defensive back coach, Coach Fawley, made the substitution so that everybody could play on the kickoff team. And this guy ran the kickoff back and scored a touchdown. Okay. So what we did from there, how you become a good coach. I came up with an idea. I said, tell you what we do. When we score a touchdown, for the extra point, we'll take all the people who haven't played and put them on the extra point team. We call it the nightmare team. 
And <laughs> that's what we did. And we worked the play, you know. So Slap. we were able to work that situation so that two or three minutes into the first quarter, everybody played. So you take a problem and you figure out a solution and that's how you become a good coach. Okay, so now that you kind of went into one little story that you got, because this is one one of the reasons that I definitely had to pick y'all two, because both of y'all could tell some hell of a story. My God. So um, I, I want to kind of say this for later until the interview. Um, you told me a story a long time ago about a number one team in Texas challenge y'all after, you know, y'all did what y'all was doing. Clearly, y'all was dominating out here. Um, so, can you kind of go through the what happened when you went to Texas to actually accept this challenge? Beaumont. We went to Beaumont, Texas to play. Uh, the last practice we had at home before we left, we were talking as a coaching staff about psychological warfare. So I said, hmm, psychological warfare. How do you beat someone before you play them? You beat them in the head. So she's my wife now, but she was my girlfriend there. She had Rockwilders. And one of them would always kick his leg up wherever he went and pee. And, and he was marking his territory. He was saying, this is mine. So I said, okay, we're going to do that. And the coaches started laughing. I said, man, they say, man, I ain't, I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about the players. We went to Beaumont. We had two different uniforms. So we were real cool. <laughs> Swagging Swag around. So we put on our gold uniform and went warmed up. And when we got through warming up, they had a big wooden fence at the end of the playing field. So we had talked about it. I had talked about it with the players. The coaches didn't believe that I would do it. So they were standing over here. So me and the players, we went over to the fence and we whipped them out and peed on the fence. <laughs> well, nobody knew what we were doing because you couldn't see. All you could see was us close to the fence. But when we walked away from the fence, you could see the wet spots. And the team we was playing stopped dead in their tracks and just looked. And we always walked on a single file line. And we walked past them in a single file line. Then we went and put on our white uniforms, came back and beat them unmercifully. <laughs> Do you remember the score of that game? What was the score, Terry? I don't know. We tried to tear it down, though. 38 to 6. Yeah, I, I think they scored once. They scored once. No, 38 to 6. Oh, <laughs> they was looking at our defensive coaches and some of them, I can't tell you the words that were said <laughs> to them. But <laughs> Damn offensive coaches. But, but the other thing, and, that, and it, it's, it's really important. As the South Baton Rouge Rams coaches, we had them. A mystique. And everybody was wondering how many points they're going to score, what kind of new plays they're going to come up with. 
but they fail to realize that whatever we scored, when you look at our opponent's score, nine out of ten times it was zero. <laughs> so they spent a lot of time worrying about our offense, and our defense was killer. We kick off. We never, we never took the kick. We always wanted to kick to you, and we kick to you, and if we stop you at the ten. That's right. We score. <laughs> Give for us loss, the for loss, and then we talked about yeah, we talked about stealing timeouts. See, if I'm on offense and you on defense, and I make you call a timeout, I just stole one of your timeouts. I make you call a timeout by something I've done that you're not prepared to deal with. So now, in this half, I got four timeouts. You only have two now, so I just doubled up on. Look at a problem, figure a solution. That's how you become a good coach. That's that's one of my all-time favorite stories. <laughs> that's one of my all-time favorite stories. Our fans, our fans, completely lost their mind <laughs> when we moved away from the fence and they saw the P on the fence. Our fans completely lost their mind. If I'd have been, if I'd have been on the team against y'all, I'd have stolen one. <laughs> Out the gate, cause you gotta do something. You gotta do something. You like, get I some said, edge back, huh? like I yeah. said, like I said, if if I was Les Miles, and they were playing Alabama, you know how you meet Nick Saban in the middle of the field? Yeah, I'd drop him. I probably would. Too. I'd drop him. Now they might arrest me and take me off, but I just jack my players up. Hey, look, if, look. When I, was playing, I just jacked them up. The team that we had. Yeah. If Coach Miles stole on Nick Saban before the game, we win it. I know. I know. Out the gate. I know. Because <laughs> now we know. It's yeah. like, this, yeah. mo- this is Les A. Yeah, he <laughs> out there. Les A. Les with it, baby. Look, he done put it all on the line for yeah, me. Yeah, no, he laid it yeah. down. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When you, that's like, when, as a player, if you know your coach will lay it down for you, you got to go the extra mile. You got to go. You got to. You got to go. That's, that is that is cool as hell, bro. Out the gate, baby. Out the gate. Well, towards the end, toward, normally towards the end of the podcast, we try to do uh, something we call SQ uh, as Sheed uh, with his uh, self-centered self. Uh-huh. He likes to have Sheed questions uh-huh. that he has. He he kind of puts <laughs> into the mix of things. Right. So this these are they kind of quirky questions that he always come up with. So um, don't set me out too bad. I, well, he got a question for you, Cleve. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know where he came up with this from, but I'm gonna ask you because this is All what right. I do. Right. Um, swag. I'm gonna ask you this first okay. before I ask you the question. Are you familiar with the song Swag Surfing? No, you're not familiar with it. I okay, don't know what it means. It's, it's a soul. Okay. I don't know why she asked you this. I guess because I call you Swag. <laughs> you the Go ahead. He said, when Swag Surfing first came out, did you feel honored that they would put your name in a revolutionizing song? No, look, Pops, the song that, well, we know at Northwestern State, they didn't really stay past the uh, third quarter for games, usually. Uh, <laughs> but they always played at the beginning of the fourth quarter, the uh-huh. Swag Surfing. You but, swag. I don't, you but I don't think you all stayed for the whole game. <laughs> One of them, one of them we did a home game. No, okay, yeah. I know. So I guess 
That's a dull boy question. I don't know why she came up with that. I'm like, he must not realize how old Mark is. Yeah. Not to say that against your age. Yeah. I don't know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, you know. They had a guy on TV the other day was rapping, man. I, I could not understand a word you he was saying. Panda. All right, well, this is another question for you that, that you can probably answer better. Mm-hmm. He asked, did you ever let, in, in quotations, did you ever let Cleve win at anything? No. 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 <laughs> no. Like, if I won, if I won, I won. <laughs> Why? And I'm the same way. Don't let me win. That's my son. Why would I want to? Why would I want to give him false? Hey, uh, we play basketball, whatever. We play chess, spit to the line. I'm not never letting him win. If he win, he won. Nah, he ain't, ain't gonna never let him. Nah, he ain't played basketball against me since like twelve. That's right. <laughs> like once he hit fifty-three, he laid it up. Yeah, I ain't once crazy. I started getting kind of strong, you know, like no. Nah, but we raised. I remember we no, were you ra- raced Margaret. You didn't oh, race me. Yeah, she was talking big trash. Yeah, I wanted oh. you. I was. I wanted you. Yeah, but you ain't. You ain't take my bet. You took her. Yeah, I know her. <laughs> <laughs> Look at a problem. <laughs> Come up with a solution. <laughs> That's <laughs> how you be a good coach. That's how you do it. Okay, okay. Cleve, this is the question. This is question for you. He say, Cleve, do you remember? When I mossed you on one play, then came back the next play, forced you to fumble, and picked it up for a TD, yes, B, you remember that a little bit, or C, hell, hell yeah, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Well, I don't like to do Stone Cold Steve Austin, boy. Do you remember that at all? So against me, <laughs> against me, Cleve, do you remember when I mossed you on one play? <laughs> he talking about man? I don't know what he talking about. He got to be talking about man. These are she questions, bro. So she, so he pulling my chain right now. <laughs> yeah, man. That, yeah, that happened. Uh, that happened. I guess the same time that I put in my application with Sigma or something, dog. That uh, must have got lost. I don't know. <laughs> oh. They throw, they throw shots at my I, mean, I'm just, I ain't throwing shots. I'm just saying, like that—that that, that, that must have happened. I guess you know I like blue. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> she question, and I'm gonna actually throw a, a Terry question in there real quick because she did slip me something to ask. Uh-huh. I think more, more so to swag. Um, but I'm gonna ask both of y'all. No, let Cleve go first. Uh, I, I, if it's the question, I think it is. Okay. Well, what's your thoughts on saluting the flag in the NFL? Saluting the flag in the NFL, um, I feel like I feel like you can't force patriotism. Like they want, they want the NFL. The NFL wants the players to stand for the national anthem in a show of solidarity with uh, United Way and all that. For the that's what that's for, right? They like a United Way deal. That's not. Now they come up with a new rule. Oh yeah, you talk. Oh yeah, that rule. That rule. Oh, well, you gotta stand up or stay in the locker room. Right. right yeah. Yeah. All right. So. So you're instantly taking away the First Amendment right there, First Amendment right, freedom of speech. I don't, I personally don't stand for the the national anthem. Um, I'm a history, I'm, I'm a history major, and knowing what I know about the national anthem and uh, the place it was written and who wrote it, what's in the second and third stanzas, I, I as a black person just couldn't, I won't, I won't stand up for it. 
But um, I don't know. I want to turn that over to Pops. I want to see what Pops think about that. Yeah, and plus, not to mention, for people that don't know, he is a veteran. So yeah. this is very interesting. I am a veteran. I think it's probably the most racist thing currently going on in America. And that's saying a lot. Because right now, because we got unarmed black men getting killed, women, children. And that's more racist because they are trying to control you mentally. And that's wrong. Now, what that idiot in the White House did was he took a protest against police brutality and the inhumane treatment of black people here in America and he flipped the script and made it about patriotism and the flag and how you were dishonoring veterans. You know, you don't, veterans fought the wars that were fought. Some gave their lives so that you could protest, so that you could stand up, be a man, and if you saw something you didn't like, you could say it with no repercussions. The NFL, and I'm not watching the NFL this year, as a matter of fact, because of this. The NFL owners have allowed a racist bigoted 45. I'm not going to even call him president. And I'm not going to even use his name. I, I, I respect that because I'm kind of the same way. I, don't you know, I ain't going to use his name. To bully them into doing something. And it's about money. It's about dollars and cents. Because some white people are upset because black people have an initial... White people were just as upset with Martin Luther King as they are with Kaepernick. Same principle. I can stand, I'm a man. I'm a grown man. And people can't ride your back unless you bend over. And I'm gonna stand straight. And I ain't gonna watch the NFL. And I don't, I stood up for the national anthem when I was at LSU games because my son played ball. That's the only reason. People would say, how long have you been an LSU fan? I said, I'm not an LSU fan. I'm a Cleveland Davis fan. And I will support him in whatever he does, period, point blank, no matter what it is. And he's done some good and some bad things, but I supported him, period, because that's my son. But this, I can't oppose, and I can't support it, and I won't support it. I'm going to watch football on Saturday, and I'm going to watch the fire stick on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and to sort of piggyback off of that, I've been reading this, uh, I've been reading the U.S. flag code. And within the articles of the flag code, it says that the flag, as in the American flag, should never be used for advertising purposes in any manner whatsoever. It should not be embroidered on such articles as cushions, handkerchiefs, and light, print, and light printed or otherwise impressed on paper napkins or boxes. <clears throat> Basically, you can't use it for advertisement. That's what the NFL has done. Right. So, because they receive money from yeah. the United Way. 
from no the military. No, from, oh, from the military too. Yeah, yeah, the military. Yeah, from the military. And it's it's just wrong, man. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. And it's worse. Why I say it's worse than killing unarmed black men? I grew up in the fifties and the sixties, and they've been doing it since then. The difference is everybody got a camera now and they can show you that it's been done. I, I'm not a great proponent. Or, I, I don't care much for white people. Let's just throw it on out there. I really that's, don't. That's fine. <laughs> I really don't. That's fine. You know, because if you know this guy is racist, that's why I say all police are corrupt. Let me start right there. And everybody get on my case. I got friends who are policemen. I tell them they corrupt. And they say, why? Because you condone it. You know what's going on. You're a policeman. You know what's going on. And you be quiet. You're just as guilty as the man who pulled the trigger. To me. Because if I was a policeman, I wouldn't let it go on. Now I might get fired. I might get ostracized, whatever, but I would speak up. Wrong is wrong, no matter who doing it. And for right around the corner, Alton Sterling was killed. They showed you the body camera footage of what that dude did. He murdered that boy. He murdered him. And they showed it to you on video. The chief of police here in Baton Rouge now is a black man. And he fired him. He didn't bring charges against him, which he should have, and which the attorney general of the state of Louisiana should have. They didn't. He fired him. That's all. That's a trade-off for white folks. If you fire every... For example, if you could find every white person who killed a black person and that's all that would happen to them, do you know what these white folks would be doing out here? They'd be, it'd be open season on us. It is open season on us. It's, it's open season on us, but only to a degree. But now, if you look at the videos that come on Facebook, and I look at the videos, White people are now saying, go back to your country. You don't like it here, go back to your country. Well, I say the same thing to them. You don't like what I'm doing? Go back to your country. Because you, you you came here and found people here. Right, right. right. And the funny, thing, <laughs> the funny thing, I guess to kind of give not too much of my opinion on it, but just the, the irony of certain things dealing with this, they like to think that they don't like to show the the side of the story where they saying people like you aren't watching the NFL. They saying it's people on the other side of that that's not watching the NFL. Another thing that you said that was minimal, but it was huge at the same time. You said you're gonna be watching your fire stick. That's another reason that ratings are going down Damn. because people aren't watching it on television nope. and cable. And another thing you said too that I just recently heard today 
I don't know if y'all heard the story about the, the FBI agent that was dancing. He did a backflip, yeah, picked up his gun and yeah, shot somebody. Yeah. They're actually holding charges on him for second degree assault. Right. For a mistake that he made. For a mistake that he, he made. He clearly just made a mistake. Not saying that he should be absolved or anything, but what, like you just said, what's wrong is wrong. wrong. And if you're going to hold one thing to one standard, you should hold everything to that standard. So I totally agree. Um, I think more I think more people needed to actually hear what you if, just had to if, say. If what is written is true, then everybody should be held to that standard. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created and endowed by their creator for certain unalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. If that's true, then it ought to, it ought to mean just as much to me as it means to everybody else. But it doesn't because it's not true. Yeah, well, those people, were, they were slave owners, too, John. No, they were criminals, Cleve. Let's, <laughs> let's break this thing down. <laughs> yes, they were damn criminals. Listen, they tell, us, they tell us history. And let, me, let me tell you some real history. Historian, remember? Yeah, let me, let me tell you some real history. They call them pilgrims. I call them criminals. Outcasts. They were, they say they, they left their country. In search of a new world. No. Religious freedom. They left their country because they got kicked out because they was murderers, robbers, rapists. Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. They came here. Indians. Not our full founders. Yeah, well, Not yeah. the founding I'm talking fathers. About, I'm talking about Ben Franklin, Where Thomas Jefferson, yeah. Washington, Adams, them fellas. Okay, now they came here. Indians didn't know nothing about fences. That's that was that's strange. They didn't know nothing about fences. The land was open. They didn't get fences till a white man came, cause he fenced this off and said, "This is mine." They marched Indians off their land to a reservation in North Dakota, the coldest part. Of this country. They call it the tale of tears. There's a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. And that's what it talks about. How many Indians they force march. You know what force march is, right? Uh, you can explain it. Oh, force march is <clears throat> where I'm on a horse and you walk. And I walk you all day. I don't let you stop to eat. I don't let you stop to go to the bathroom. I don't let you stop to tend to your children. I make you march. And if you fall, I leave you there. If your child falls, I leave him there. And you stay because it's your child. And you die. Because you don't have no food. You don't have no water. It was no, it was no smoke breaks. <laughs> they march you, they force march you from your home to a reservation that they have now fenced it in, and this is where you got to stay, cause the rest of this land is mine. 
every victory that American troops won was considered a victory. Every victory the Indians won was a massacre. Why? Why? Why those words don't they were, match up? They because they were savages. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but that's where we at. That's where right. this story. And yeah. I, it it bothers me. And I've always taught my children the truth. We never believed in Santa Claus. He don't come here. Yeah, man. I messed up like I messed uh, second grade up. I know you did. Santa Claus I thing, did. Man. No Easter Bunny. I never believe in that either. Though. Uh, <laughs> I but I'm saying, why would we tell our children? Now look, how, look, look, look at the mental part of this thing. We telling our children, some white dude, <laughs> it's gonna be benevolent enough and smart enough to go around the world and give all the children who've been good. Now, who determines good? This white dude. He determines whether you. Naughty or nice? Why would I? Why would I handicap my children and put them under such a thumb? That's crazy. Whatever you get at Christmas, mean your mama bought it. Now you can tell us what you want, and if we can get it, we're gonna get it. If we can't, we're gonna look you in the face and say we can't get this, and we're gonna wrap it up in presents with the paper and all the other. Saying we're going to have the Christmas tree, we're going to let you help decorate, we're going to do all them things. But I'm not going to tell you some white man is going to control this whole thing. He ain't controlling nothing here. It's controlled by me and your mama. The funny thing about I got this conversation at right like now, three, dog. And the funny thing about it, I feel like that's what that just went back to. Yeah, I was three. Goddamn, Santa Claus. And I kind of want to get, like I said, this is our Father's Day special. Mm -hmm. So I kind of do want to ask some of the, the more serious style questions as far as like fatherhood and and stuff like that. So, uh, Swag, you first. Um, as a father, what are you most proud of about Cleve? Cleve always wanted to be independent. And I don't know if he got that from us or was something he developed in his own character, but he's always wanted to be independent. When Cleve was two or three, I believe Cleve was reading, because we'd be riding and he'll say, Popeye, K and B. And we'd be passing these places. You know what I'm saying? Is he reading, Terry? But he always wanted to be independent. He bought a truck. He wouldn't let us help him. So I'm saying, no, I got it. He bought his own truck, pay his own insurance. And, and he's he's always been independent. Now, Margaret, on the other hand, has always been independent. But Margaret will flare up on you in a second. In a second. And, and they are so different. And Cleve will, he'll get quiet. If you, I've whipped Cleve for things that I later found out Margaret did. <laughs> and he would, he would take it. And he wouldn't rat out. Huh? Cleve, daddy. Cleve did it. 
<laughs> Even when he didn't do it, this Cleve did it. And she would rat him out, but he wouldn't rat her out. I, I, I just admire that. that. The thing about being a father, which I, it, it hurts my heart because so many black men really never experience the joy of being a father. I'm not talking about buying groceries. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about looking at your son when he can't walk. Watch him struggle. Watch him fall down. Get back up. You help him up sometimes. And he get back up. And then he start making steps. And then he's pot trained. And then... <laughs> then then he, he... You see him go out in the street. And he start interacting with other little boys. And you say... He asks you about things. And if you got an open, honest relationship with him, you tell him what's right and what's wrong. Now, that don't mean he's going to do it, but at least you got some input. And and to be there to nurture and to hug him. Now, a lot of men don't hug their sons. I hug my son. When he was a little boy, I'd hug him and kiss him. And he'd get mad, mad, mad. And I'd say, boy, you my son. I kiss you if I want. I kiss you in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't do that much. <laughs> I can't recall that happened much. No, I, I would say it to him. I yeah. wouldn't do it, but I. But why? Right. <laughs> got some jewels on him, boy. <laughs> I kiss you in the mouth. But but from my own experience, my father died when I was nine, and I had nobody to show me about how you change the oil in the car. Uh, I played football in high school. It was pretty good. Senior day. You know, they give you a flower to give to. Well, my mother died when I was 14. And my aunt and my uncle, they raised me. But I played four years. People talked about me all over the city. And they never came to one football game. So senior day, I got a flower that I ain't got nobody to give it to. And I said to myself, if I ever have a son, no matter what he's doing, I'm going to be there. He went to playing the tuba, which, you know, I was, but he had citywide competition. I was there. Remember? He was in a dance group. This I do not remember. Yeah, he was in the dance group. And most of the kids were saying, Oh man, if you know, you know what they call you when you when it's a male and you're in a dance group. I ain't gonna say the word, but you know what it is. Right. And I'd be that for him. And they but they said the same thing about me when I took home economics. But I was getting old. Cause I was eating. I ain't had to cook nothing. And I was like the only dude in the dance class and I was and I was eating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I believe that long. I was please. eating. <laughs> this is so great. <laughs> this is but, so great. For most men, the things that you miss, you try to provide. 
It's hard. And I say again, it's not about money. Sometimes a pat on the back means the world to a kid. Or to say, you special. I love you. It means the world to a kid. It really does. And it's something every father can give, irregardless of their financial status. It's something they can give. You can make your child feel good. You can make them feel special. And if you tell them they're special enough, and if you tell them you love them enough, and if you tell them I'm going to always be there for you as long as I'm here enough, it makes a different child. Totally different. Look at our streets right now. These kids walking around with their pants hanging, all different kind of hairstyles. And I, I, ain't, I ain't knocking that. I'm just saying, where's your focus? Right. Where are your goals? What you want to be? What you want to be? Ten years from now, what you going to be doing? Standing on the corner with your pants hanging? There ain't no life. So, father means doing for them when you can't do for you. Mm. That's great. That's great. All right, Cleo, I got to ask you a question. I don't think you're going to top swag, but hey. No. I get to ask you a question anyway. Cool. Uh, as his son, um, what do you love most about your pops? Man, I know. I knew at, at 417, he was going to be turning the corner to come pick me up. Like as, a, like as a man, knowing that you could depend, as a young man, as a, as a person, knowing that you could depend on somebody is one of the most confident things that you could ever have, man. Like I told, I told my mother and my dad, all, I, I think I tell my dad maybe more than my mom, but uh, man, I give, they gave me the confidence to just go do whatever I feel like I could do. I feel like I, I, there's nothing I can't do because I got a strong foundation with my parents. Um, they kind of, they, they'll give you the confidence in life to go forward and do stuff. Like you'll take a leap. You know, if you fall flat on your face, it's cool. They got you got somebody that'll that'll lift you up when things get rough. Um, I know my I go to my dad pretty much any time for any kind of guidance or counsel. I know that my mother always gonna tell it how it is. So whether whether it's going out and coaching at a coaching in a, a small town or uh, becoming a part of an upstart program that I could possibly become the face of one day. You know, I I might be. I might be the face of prep sports in Baton Rouge one day. Who knows? But I know that because of the lessons they taught me and the experiences I have, it's not much I can't do. And I know that because every day I've had my dad to reassure me, hey, son, you're strong. You can handle it. You can do it. You can go for it. My, I got my mother. If I ever got hurt or bruised up or whatever, she was always there to like, you know, baby me up, and then she'll say, "All right, now get your ass up. You got to stand strong now." I had that every day. Um, that's not the case for everybody. Like, like my dad said, a lot of people around the streets they don't have, they don't have a father or whatever. Like, my dad basically became a lot of my friends' pops or uncles. Um, having. Having him there every day, you know, it's, it's giving me confidence to push forward in life. That's for sure. And I know that 
when I have kids, I know the proper example of what a father should be. So even if I'm not half the dad or half the man he is, I know the example that he set. I know what a dad's supposed to look like, as opposed to somebody who never had a father who just basically gets Right, right. Well, um, and, you know, I, I, this was like an honor for me, for me to do this interview with y'all. I'm telling y'all, because, I mean, one, you know, it's all love. We family. And oh, yeah. anytime I can link up with y'all, it's always a good thing. Um, but two, I knew, especially some of the things, especially in the latter part of this interview that, that Swag said, like, this is what I grew up listening to. These are the stories that, like, I appreciate so much about just sitting in here, the summers that I stayed here, and different things like that. And I just listen to Swag and just tell me different things. And I always tell people he like one of the best orators that I've ever heard because he can tell a story better than anybody I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I can't, I don't want to get into too many details about like some of the war stories he done told us, but Swag can have you dying laughing at one minute and you be down there about to cry the next minute. So it's like, you know, he just wanted to, you know, best orators that I heard, and I just want to say, you know, first and foremost, uh, Swag, you you know, you've been very influ influential to my life. Um, like I said, I still remember a lot of the small lessons when you told me that day you walked up on that, uh, we was having a crawfish ball at Grandma's house. Somebody told me no to something. I'm mad. You spoke. I didn't. You told me. I ain't make you mad. You gonna speak. You speak to me. I ain't do you nothing. So you don't treat other people wrong because somebody else, and even though that's something real, real small of a lesson, that's a big thing to know about in life and just in general things. And, and that's something that I'm going to teach my child. So, I mean, I just look at it like, you know, you've been a huge part of the journey of me becoming not only a good father, but a good man. And Cleve, bro, you always been a brother from another mother. You know, like your mama say, she my mama too. So, I always felt like this was home for me, even though this wasn't my mama's house. You know, my actual biological mama's house. This was always home for me. Uh, I could always come over here when I was at my mama's house and drink as many cold drinks as I wanted. <laughs> whenever y'all had functions. So, I, you know, I just enjoyed it. But Cleve, you always been somebody that I always try to do. I know I might not be your number one fan or your number two fan or hell, even your number three fan. But I know I'm alone in the top five. I try to make sure I can support you as best I can and be there for you as much as I can because I always had... A lot of love for you, you know what I'm saying? So I really, really, really appreciate y'all doing this. And, I, I mean, I'm proud of the man that you becoming. I'm proud that I can call you my uncle. One thing I won't ever call you is John Thompson. we have to get into that story another time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> I won't ever call you John Thompson. But, you know, that was a good thing. Clearly, like, you got something you want to say. Hey, man, you know, for me growing up, I wanted to be Arrow, man. I wanted to be Big Five and I wanted to be E. That that is true, and I used to tell you stuff like you would never be as big as me. And then, yeah, <laughs> life I happened. told y'all like, bro, one day I'm gonna be bigger than you. <laughs> you up? <laughs> like, you ain't gonna never do that to me, bro. I'm gonna always be big, cuz. I'm like, all right, look. Uh, luckily, the one second day. part never happened. Uh, <laughs> we never had to go that route. No, man, it's all love. Man. But uh, <laughs> is there anything else y'all maybe want to share or speak on before we before we close? Like anything y'all just want to put out there, if y'all want to speak on something that's going on in sport, anything that we may not, because I know we ain't touch on necessarily current things, but if y'all got anything y'all want to just say, you know. Eric Reed, free Eric Reed and free Colin Kaepernick. Eric Reed was one of the best safeties in the league last year, and he doesn't have a home still. All pro? All pro safety. 
five years. He's 26 years old. Uh, that dude, that dude deserves an opportunity. Colin Kaepernick, the goals without saying it. Scott Tolzien could start games. Colin Kaepernick should be on somebody's NFL team. If um, I was telling pops, if Jackson, if the Jacksonville Jaguars have Colin Kaepernick as their starting quarterback, they're the Super Bowl champions today. They'd have been. They're the Super Bowl champions today. Only, I just think we, as a people, we've allowed ourselves to be manipulated, divided. They talk to us about the American dream. But ain't no American dream for black people. We can't, I think King said it best, if there's injustice anywhere, there's injustice everywhere. If we, if we don't stop killing each other, ragging each other, and start pulling for each other, we're going to remain in the same position that we am right now. With an idiot for a president, with a Congress that's scared, with police that don't mind killing unarmed black men, women, and children. That's going to perpetuate. That's going to remain the same. We have to make a change. We have to make a change. Last thing. I was doing a sermon and I, I did some research on it. And I asked Google, and that's what everybody do, you ask Google. I asked Google, how many eligible voters did not vote in the 2016 presidential election? Google came back and said 100 million. Did you hear me? One hundred million eligible voters did not vote. That's why we got that idiot. That's why he's in the White House now. If half of that hundred million would have voted, we'd be in better shape. If you didn't vote, you voted for that idiot. That's it. Hmm. Like I said Man, make you won't listen to him. I'm telling you, bro. So, I want to thank y'all again for this uh, doing this Father's Day special podcast on Unqualified Sports. Happy Father's Day to everybody. Happy Father's Day to you, Swag. Wow. Happy Future Father's Day to you, Cleve. Maybe Happy Father's Day to you. We don't know. Maybe you got maybe you no, drinking no, and got no, a baby. No, so we just no, don't know no, about. No, uh, no, 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 no. Tell She to send me that song yet, so I can at least know what he's talking I'm a, about. I'm gonna put it up for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to put it on the podcast so you'll know. Uh, but everybody, we appreciate y'all listening. Y'all be blessed.